Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking with a distinguished visitor and guest and friend of the Ashbrook Center, Professor Robert George. Uh, Professor George is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University and also director of the wonderful James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, also at Princeton. Received his undergraduate degree from Swarthmore College his MTS and JD from Harvard University, and his DPhil, among other degrees, from Oxford <laughs> University. <laughs> um, Professor George is a prodigious author of many articles and books uh, on philosophy, the U.S. Constitution, religion, civil rights and liberties, and really one, actually, Professor George, one of my favorites is uh, Conscience and Its Enemies, which you co-wrote with Marianne Glendon, a terrific book. Um, he has a deep interest, as the title of that book suggests, in moral philosophy, religious liberty, and in maintaining and sustaining civil discourse in America and more broadly and more specifically in the academy. Uh, he has received for his public engagement many awards, uh, really too numerous to list, but among them stand out the United States Presidential Citizens Medal, which he received, I believe, in 2008. And I didn't know this about Professor George, but he's also quite a guitarist and a bluegrass banjo player. And is it true that you led a band in your undergraduate days? Yes, I came by my bluegrass banjo playing honestly. I was born and brought up in the hills of West Virginia, where banjos are issued to little boys at birth. So <laughs> that's how I ended up uh, as a bluegrass musician. Fantastic. <laughs> um, you live, obviously you work, and really live the life of the mind in the university, at Princeton University in particular now. Um, we hear a lot about the state of the contemporary university. From someone who's within it, I just wanted, if we could spend a few moments today talking about the contemporary university, your reflections on its condition and its prospects going forward. Um, just for our listeners uh, to this podcast, we're interested in American history, American first principles, and in the, and the state of American education. To start, what's your thought on the general condition of America's universities, including leading universities like yours at Princeton? American universities are in trouble. Uh, that's true of my own institution. It's uh, true of private and public colleges and universities throughout the country. They're in trouble, I think, for the most part because they no longer have a good grip on their mission. Hmm. They're uncertain as to why they exist, what their purpose is, yeah. to use that wonderful Greek word, what the telos is, ah, yes. the point of the enterprise. Uh, 
people associated with universities, people in leadership positions in universities, certainly faculty, ask themselves, is our purpose to create good employees for mm. the American economy? Others, a great many others, ask, is our purpose to create warriors for social justice, however ah, right. social justice is, is conceived? Um, are we best understood on a consumer model, a customer model, a mm -hmm. customer service model? Are we to provide a service to the students? Are we to give them whatever it is they're looking for, a credential, mm -hmm. uh, a certain set of skills, imparting information that will be useful to them? It seems to me a shame that we have so much uncertainty about the mission of higher education because the mission to me is very clear and unambiguous. Universities exist for students and faculty to pursue the truth. Hmm. That's what it's all about. We're there to get at the truth, not only for its instrumental value, the things that knowing the truth, the things that knowledge can enable you to do, right. but most fundamentally for its own sake. This was the great liberating insight we get, for example, in Socrates' teaching as mediated to us by Plato. Mm -hmm. The most fundamental reason to pursue knowledge, knowledge of truth, is the intrinsic value of the knowledge. So I would characterize the mission of the university fundamentally as truth-seeking, or we can divide it into a tripartite scheme. The purpose of a university is to seek knowledge of the truth, to preserve knowledge of the truth once it's been securely obtained, right. and to transmit knowledge mm -hmm. of the truth. That's the teaching mission of the university. So there's a research mission that applies to students as well as, as established scholars. Right. Uh, there's a preservation aspect of the mission. And of course, there's the, there's the teaching mission. Now, universities do lots of other things, Jeff. Sports, uh, arts, uh, various sorts of activities, including political activities. There can be the Democrat Club and the Republican Club and the Libertarian Club and the Socialist Club and all those sorts of things, just as there can be the Chess Club and the Ballet Club. And it's not wrong for universities to do those things and to encourage their students' involvement in all those different activities. Mm -hmm. But none of those should be allowed to undermine in any way or shortchange the fundamental mission of truth-seeking. It's interesting that you say that because um, those, those used to be called, those other things used to be called extracurriculars. I've heard some university officials now call them co-curriculars, as though they share a certain pride of place with the kind of pursuit of truth that should be happening in the classroom, the lab, the studio. Yes, I've heard that same expression, co-curricular uh, activities. Right. <laughs> uh, that shows you we've gone a little off the rails. They are extra-curricular. Uh, now, there are ways in which they can serve the curricular mission. Certainly, sure. being in good physical health, physical fitness, is an aid to uh, flourishing intellectually. Mm -hmm. uh, we do better when we're healthy, even intellectually, than when we're not. Uh, uh, healthy. Uh, th we shouldn't be too quick to sharply distinguish uh, the arts from the intellectual mission of the university right. because the intellectual mission pertains to the arts and the arts can pertain to the intellectual mission. 
but these are nuances. The important thing is to understand that the defining, constitutive, justifying purpose of institutions of higher learning is the pursuit of knowledge of the truth, the preservation of knowledge of the truth once securely obtained, and the transmission of knowledge of the truth. We want anyone associated with a university, I even include staff in this because they, they are helping us to do our mission, mm -hmm. but certainly students, certainly faculty, I want everyone associated with universities to be truth seekers and truth speakers. We should seek the truth with determination, willing to follow the evidence and the argument in any field, any discipline, wherever it leads, and then we should speak the truth courageously once we believe we've got it. Now, we should never be too dogmatic. Right, right. We don't want to become ideologues. We always have to be aware of our own fallibility, the sheer brute fact that we could be mistaken. Mm -hmm. So even when we're confident that we've got the truth, confident enough that we feel as we should, impelled to speak the truth boldly, even if it's unpopular, mm -hmm. still we need to be open to challenge, open to criticism, willing to engage with others who see it differently, willing to take seriously people who challenge our views. We have to be slow to preach and quick to listen. Mm. We may have some things to teach other people in our debates when they disagree with us, but it's very likely we have some things to learn from them as well. Mm. So a certain intellectual humility is central among the virtues that need to be in place among university people at all levels mm -hmm. if we are to be truth-seeking institutions, if we are to be truth-seekers. When you present this vision, uh, I'll call it old-fashioned, but it's really a classic understanding of the university as a place of truth-seeking and truth-speaking. When you present this vision to new students, to parents, to, to administrators in universities, to faculty, what's the reaction that you receive? Usually it's a positive reaction, but the news comes as news. Uh -huh. It's a surprise. Mm -hmm. And I can sympathize, Jeff, with that experience because it happened to me. As I say, I was born and brought up, grew up in the hills of West Virginia. I had a Huck, Huck Finn type boy uh -huh. growing up <laughs> hunting and fishing and, and hiking. Uh, neither of my parents had been to college. I was the first, I was the oldest of five boys, all, mm -hmm. five, five children, all boys, uh, first to go to college in my, in my family. And uh, my parents' fathers were both coal miners. Uh, my, my mom's dad was able to uh, save enough money to eventually get out of the mines and open a little grocery business. But for the first 20 or 25 years of uh, his adult life, he was a coal miner, and my dad's dad was a coal miner for the, his, the entirety of his life, coal miner and railroad laborer. So college was a new thing mm -hmm. uh, in my family. And it was just taken for granted when I was growing up that while my parents expected the boys, starting with me, to go to college, this was a great aspiration in our family, mm. the point or purpose that we assumed it had a college education was rising in the world, getting ahead, having a profession, not having to work in the coal mines right. or on the railroads, mm -hmm. uh, uh, more income, 
uh, a, a materially better, better life. And then some sense of just the goodness of being a well-educated person. But that last point was in the background. It wasn't in the foreground. So I had an essentially instrumentalist conception of education, of knowledge seeking, when I arrived at Swarthmore College at 18 years old. But in my sophomore year, in an ordinary survey course on political theory, it was a perfectly good course, but it, 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 was, it was a survey. Right. It's meant to introduce students to uh, the history of political thought, beginning, of course, with the Greeks. We were assigned Plato's Gorgias. Now, when I arrived at Swarthmore, I, I'm pretty sure I had no idea who Plato was. Right. <laughs> so this was all new to me. Uh-huh. And this was the first of the dialogues that I encountered. And in that dialogue, Plato shows us, through the teaching of Socrates, that the sophists, who have a purely instrumental understanding of knowledge-seeking right. and of discussion and of debate, are in the wrong, <laughs> that they're in error, they're making a mistake, that Socrates' view is superior because Socrates has the insight that however much instrumental value knowledge-seeking, truth-seeking, discussion, debate, discourse might have, the most important thing about it What's most fundamental about knowledge and about truth-seeking is its intrinsic value, its inherent enrichment of ourselves as rational beings, as, as, as human, human creatures, creatures who have reason and freedom. Well, this hit me like a bolt out of the blue. Huh. Yeah. Suddenly I saw it. It's the closest I've ever had to an epiphany. I could Thank see that Socrates was right and the sophists were in the wrong and that I had been on the side of the sophists <laughs> and I had to get myself over onto the other side. So when I break this news to my own students, uh, often with my beloved friend uh, and colleague Cornell West, as we preach this gospel uh, together very often, uh, we find that students are taken by surprise hmm. and it takes a little while for it to sink in, but they do get it and it's transformative. Hmm. It, it brings about a kind of intellectual, and in a certain sense, one might even say spiritual conversion. Because most students these days have that instrumentalist conception of education that, that, that I had. Yeah. And, and e even beyond that, most students these days have something I didn't have way back then in the Middle Ages when I went to college. <laughs> and that was a consumerist understanding of education. Now, I didn't have that, but our students today do that they're the purchasers, they're the customers, and they're buying a commodity, education, and they're buying it for an instrumental purpose. We gotta clear all that away. And Cornell and I delight in that, <laughs> in clearing that away. Now, sometimes, Jeff, it is a harder sale for the parents than it is for the students. Well, that's interesting. And I think that's because the parents are paying the money and education has become so expensive. Mm -hmm. So parents naturally want to see the material payoff. Right. I, I, we once, uh, Cornell and I were once together, it was at Princeton. We had been invited, oh, maybe this now probably six, seven, eight years ago, it was well before COVID. Uh, we were invited to address the freshman class and parents for Parents' Day. Uh -huh. And uh, we looked out and the room was full of, room seat 600 was standing room only 
all these wonderful new students and their uh, moms and dads. And uh, we were, uh, the president of the University, Christopher Rice, we were introduced to us and then uh, the uh, dean of the uh, college uh, spoke. And then it was a discussion uh, between Cornell and myself and they wanted us to address the question, what are we doing here? What, what is education all about? Why should you be excited, as you are indeed excited, to be at Princeton or to have your children here at, at Princeton? What is the point of this enterprise? What's the purpose of a liberal arts education? So I tried to explain, telling my own personal story, uh, that the purpose was not fundamentally instrumental, that there would be instrumental value. Your kids are going to get great jobs. They're going to have a valuable credential. A Princeton degree, any way you look at it, of is course. a valuable credential. Yes. There's no point in trying to pretend otherwise. There's no point in imagining that that's something bad. It's not. It's good. I, as, as I often say, I want my students to be successful in every way. I want them to make a lot of money. And remember the James Madison program of when course. they made a lot of money? <laughs> I, uh, I, I want them to be professionally successful. I want them to have, have high social status. I want people to look up to them and admire them. Um, but those things are secondary. The most fundamental thing, the reason they're here, the most fundamental reason these students are here, your sons and daughters, or you yourselves if you're the freshman, is to pursue the truth and become a lover of truth, to become a lifelong truth seeker and truth speaker, to seek the truth with determination and speak the truth as God gives you to understand the truth. Well, Cornell took it a step further. <laughs> as he sometimes I, does. <laughs> when I turned it over to him, he said, if you want to understand what you're really here for, the purpose of a liberal arts education is to teach you how to die. Wow. <laughs> and now the, the students' ears perked up, but the parents were scandalized. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm paying $78,000 a year, or whatever it was, to uh, have my students learn how, our, our young people learn how to die. Uh, but of course, what he was getting at there is another great Socratic teaching. Mm that it's from the perspective of one's death, looked at in that perspective, that we get our priorities straight. Right. If, if we're just looking ahead to the next hill to climb, the next uh, achievement to, 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 to obtain, uh, we're gonna be focused on the less important things, on the instrumental things, wealth, power, influence, prestige, uh, status, celebrity. These things that are, that are good, but not what's ultimately good. Things that are good because they're instrumentally good, you can do good things with them. You can do good things with wealth. You can do good things with power. You can go to do good things with influence. You can also do bad things. They're not good in themselves. They're good if you use them for good purposes. What's fundamental are things that are good in themselves. Friendship, knowledge, faith, integrity, honor, decency, <laughs> things you don't want for some extrinsic or instrumental purpose necessarily, but for their intrinsic worth, for the kind of human being they make you to be. Mm -hmm. um, now, David Brooks has this nice uh, way of characterizing it. He says things like being in Phi, being elected to Phi Beta Kappa, being graduated summa cum laude, these are the things that belong on a CV. We're proud of them. They're the CV virtues, but we don't put them on our tombstones. Right. Tombstones say husband, father, loving grandfather, man of integrity, woman of honor. Mm -hmm. 
it's the tombstone virtues that we need to be focused on. And if we think about what we want said about us at our death, we're probably going to get our values prioritized correctly. If we don't, if we think about, oh, what's next? For one of my Princeton undergraduates, is it, well, next is getting into Harvard Law School, and then after that is getting a Supreme Court clerkship, and after that it's getting to Cravath, Swain, and more, and after that it's becoming managing partner and being rich and being powerful and being influential and having prestige, and even who knows celebrity. Well, they're not going to get their values straight. They're going to be focused on the things that matter, but not all that much. Hmm. And they'll be distracted from the things that really matter family, friendship, faith, knowledge, mm. integrity, honesty, grace. Truth-seeking. That's powerful, I'm sure, when it hits a room like that. As you say, it might have scandalized the parents, but grabs the, <laughs> grabs the students. <laughs> maybe, maybe people have never spoken to them like that before. Uh, it's certainly true when we talk to our Ashbrook scholars here, we say similar things in the intrinsic value of pursuing the true, the good, the beautiful. And it does hit them as though no one's ever talked to them like that before. That's the truth-seeking. What about the truth-speaking part of the university? That's the harder part today. Uh, you can get away with being a truth-seeker huh. if you keep your head down, <laughs> stay out of people's way, don't upset people, keep to yourself, do your work, do your research, stay in the corner, mind your own business. Mm -hmm. It's when you have the courage and integrity to speak the truth that you get into trouble. Because mm. there's a lot of truth today that people of power, influence, status, prestige, and celebrity do not want to hear. Mm. There's certain truths about the family, about faith, about what integrity really requires. Truths that are politically incorrect, that are unpopular, that violate the new ideological orthodoxy on campuses and in the larger uh, culture. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, people aren't eager to be martyrs. Right. So the temptation is, even if you are a truth seeker, not to be a truth speaker. But we, as parents, we as educators, institutions like Princeton University or Ashland University, have a mission, and that mission is to make students not only truth seekers, but truth speakers which means we need to impart to them not only the virtues needed, such as intellectual humility to be truth seekers, but also the virtues needed, such as courage. Right. Above all, really, courage to be truth speakers. And, and I'll tell you, Jeff, courage, the, the record of humanity is pretty clear on this. Courage is never in ample supply. <laughs> it is always deficient. There's never enough of it around. But we seem to be especially bereft of it in our culture, and especially the intellectual end of the culture these days. How have you, and I'm thinking of your work on your own, but also with, uh, with Professor West, how have you tried to cultivate the courage to have not only free inquiry, but also free discussion and deliberation? I think models and examples are critically important. The great religions have understood this forever. That's why we have saints and heroes, role models. I think it's made it a lot easier for me to speak unpopular truths or what I believe to be truths. They're certainly unpopular. <laughs> uh, I think it's made a big difference to me because I have certain heroes, historical figures, contemporary people, uh, people who taught me, who have modeled mm. the virtues of truth-seeking, truth-speaking, including the virtue of courage.
And Cornell and I both believe it's our role, part of our role, part of our vocation, to model that for our own students, to model that for young people today. The good news, Jeff, is that courage is contagious. Hmm. When people see it, it's attractive. They like the look of it. They want to be that way. The bad news is that cowardice, too, is contagious. Hmm. When people are cowardly, it sets a bad example for other people and licenses and authorizes them to be cowardly. So there have to be some people who are willing to step up and take the slings and arrows that come from when you speak unpopular truths. There have to be some people who are willing to do that in order to model the virtue of courage for others. If you, thinking about the condition and the state of free speech at universities, if, if there was a, a, a reform, or if there was an idea or a thought that you would say, boy, this is what we, if there's one thing that I could help to promote across universities, um, and you've been doing so much work on this already in the public, what would that be? It is the proposition that there is no view, no position, no belief, no idea that deserves to be immunized from challenge or critique. Huh. Interesting. No matter how deeply held a view is, no matter how cherished a view is, uh, no matter how identity-forming a view is, and mm. we do form our identities around our, our convictions, uh, and we wrap our emotions around our convictions. No matter how deeply held a view is, it should always be open to criticism and challenge. I have some very deeply held views. I have some views that I share. My religious opinions, for example, my faith, uh, my, my views about freedom of speech. <laughs> and, these and, are, and many of these you've published and spoken on. I, I have, but I don't want a single one of them to be immunized from criticism. You ask me, which of your views would you like to be immunized from critique so you don't have to hear them being challenged? I will say, none. Please, mm. don't do me that mm. favor. That is not a favor. You've not done me any favor. And I need to be willing, and everyone needs to be willing, to have my or to have his or her views challenged. And that's for the simple reason, Jeff, that none of us is infallible. All of us could be wrong, not only about the superficial, trivial, minor things in life, all of us could be wrong about really important things, things having to do with human nature, the human good, human dignity, human destiny, mm -hmm. human rights, justice. We could be wrong about those things. If we look at history, the greatest figures have been wrong about important things. They're not right about everything. Mm -hmm. Now. Since we know some of what we believe even now, this is true of every human being on earth, some of what we believe is false. In every head right now, of every living human being, some beliefs are false. Mm -hmm. Now how do you move from false to true? How do you get yourself into a situation where you can swap out to the extent possible, at least as many as possible, false beliefs, swap out the false beliefs for true beliefs? Mm -hmm. Well, if you immunize yourself from critique, if you shut down free speech, if no one's allowed to challenge you, no one's allowed to criticize you, no one's allowed to question you, you're going to be stuck in error forever. Hmm. You will simply be confirmed, constantly confirmed and reinforced in the opinions you happen to have. Some of them will be true, that's great, but some are going to be false. If we have any hope of swapping out at least some of the false ones, 
and replacing them with true ones, we need to be open to challenge. And that means more than simply allowing for free speech as a political matter. That means also a, a, an existential willingness to listen, uh, not yes. just to hear, right. not just to sit by politely and not interrupt, but to genuinely listen to people on the other side. That's why I say that the fundamental job of a teacher is to expose students to the best that has been thought and said on the competing sides, on all the sides uh, of the various issues mm -hmm. on which reasonable people of goodwill disagree, which today is a vast range of issues. We don't need to relitigate whether the earth is flat, but there are, are an awful lot of things that are treated in universities today as if they're settled mm -hmm. that should not be treated as settled, that are ripe for critique and reconsideration and review. So our mission here as teachers, as professors, is to make sure our students understand the best that's to be said on the competing side. So if you look at one of my course syllabi, my reading lists in my course, uh, take a hot button issue, take an issue that I care about a lot and have written about, the issue of abortion and the sanctity of human life. Right. If you look at my reading list, you're going to see articles by top pro-life scholars, but you're also going to see articles by top people on the other side, those who defend legal abortion or the morality of abortion or even the morality of infanticide. I always assign when, uh, when we do the week on the sanctity of human life in my civil liberties class, Peter Singer's famous article, Killing Babies Isn't Always Wrong. And I assign that not simply to attack it and to hoot at it, but so that students will see what is to be said by an intelligent person, and there's no question that Peter Singer is a highly intelligent person, who fundamentally sees these issues differently than, than, than I do. And I think that's our job. It's not to indoctrinate our students. It's not to get them to think what we think. And on this point, not only Cornell West and I agree, Peter Singer agrees. Uh -huh. Singer's got the same view of education that I do. And so he assigns my work or work by other pro-life scholars in, in his classes. He regularly has as his teaching assistants, people who are pro-life, people who disagree with, with him. And on that, I think he is 100% right. And that's because education is not indoctrination. Indoctrination is not education. In fact, indoctrination is the very antithesis of education. I would rather my students be ignorant than be indoctrinated. If they are ignorant, I might be able to teach them something. If they're indoctrinated, I'm going to have to pry their minds open with a crowbar before right. I can even start the process of right. education. So something I don't appreciate in contemporary academic life is professors, whether they're colleagues of mine or at other institutions, professors who are indoctrinating their students. That is, I'll not refrain from using the word that, word, that is a sin. And I don't care whether they're indoctrinating the students on my side of an issue or the opposite of my side of an issue. Mm. If they're indoctrinating the students, not only are they not educating, they're doing them a very grave injustice. We need our students to think deeply, think critically, including self-critically, and think for themselves. And indoctrination undermines all three of those. Right. If, if you, um, we have some listeners, of course, to this uh, that are parents, their grandparents. Some students, maybe students who are considering university and college. What's the advice that you want to tell them 
when they're thinking about university and the next and, and higher education as it's called? First, note, recognize the difference between education and indoctrination. Mm. And choose a college or university where you or your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter will be educated and not indoctrinated. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, make sure that the university is one where the student will encounter the best arguments that are being made on competing sides of important issues, where there will be a lively discussion, a lively debate. So, so two is really an implication of one, right. really. Number three, once you get to college, and this I want to direct straight at the students, once you get to college, find mentors or advisors who can speak with you frankly about the best that the institution has to offer. Mm. Don't just go by the seat of your pants and don't just go by student course evaluations. <laughs> They're not reliable. If you have a professor who turns out to be a great teacher, let's say you're blessed in your freshman year to have a professor who turns out to be a great teacher, well, if that professor's a great teacher, he's probably going to be a very good mentor and advisor. He's going to know what's good in the university and what's not good in the college or university. Build a relationship with that person. Hmm. Get yes. that person's advice in planning your academic program. And fourth, do not choose your courses based primarily on the course descriptions in the course guides or course catalogs. Worry less, this is gonna, this is gonna strike people as odd, but stay with me. Right. Worry less about whether you're interested in the subject matter and rather look for who the best teachers are. Uh, yes. Study with the best teachers in the college or university, no matter what they're teaching. Hmm. Even if you're not all that interested in the subject matter, apprentice your mind to the great minds on campus. That will enable you to develop the intellectual skills and attitudes and virtues hmm. that will enable you to study anything you want for your entire lifetime on your own, deeply productively. Yeah. So uh, I was blessed when I was in college to have a professor named James Kurth at Swarthmore. Fantastic teacher, fantastic intellectual. He was teaching in areas that I, I found interesting, but they weren't at the top of my list. Okay. They were American foreign policy and international relations and comparative politics. Uh -huh. I wanted to talk philosophy. Uh -huh. I wanted to do political <laughs> theory and ethics and moral philosophy. But Kurth was a great mind and a great teacher. So I took every course I could take from him, whether or not I was interested in the subject matter. Now, had I just been reading the course descriptions, I wouldn't have taken those courses. Right. Greatest blessing in my life was to study with that man. And that meant I had to study things that, I, that weren't at the top of my list as far as areas of interest. Hmm. But he taught me to think, he taught me to think more deeply, more critically, he taught me to think for myself. He was a professor who insisted that you don't just spout back dogmas and orthodoxies or even tell him what you thought he wanted to hear. He was a teacher who demanded that students think for themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, find that kind of teacher and study. You might not be all that interested in uh, 19th century American literature. 
But if one of the great professors on the campus is a 19th century American literature guy, take that course and put your heart and soul into it. Right. You'll, you'll find you actually get pretty interested in the subject matter. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is that you're learning to think, you're learning to study, you're learning to do research, you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're learning to, how to deepen your understanding. And you can apply that to any subject matter. Right. You, as you say, you learn yourself to become a truth seeker and a truth speaker. Precisely. Professor Rami George, thank you. Amazing, interesting, fascinating insights. And thank you for your example of being a truth seeker and a truth speaker in the university today. Thanks thank for you, Jeff. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.